the sovereign and compassionate Lord Jesus is worthy of our faith and praise. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. Well, folks, I want to challenge and encourage you today about a matter of some importance in the Christian life. You've probably heard this word before. If you've been a believer for any length of time at all, you've heard this word. You know the importance of this in the Christian life, and that is faith. Faith. I want to talk about faith today as we see that in our text Scripture tells us that faith, in Hebrews 11, says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And he goes on to tell us, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So when we speak of faith in the scriptures, we see faith is described in different kinds of faith in different ways. There is, of course, saving faith. That is that faith which God, as he produces that in us, as we turn to him, we put our trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, for the gift of eternal life in his name, saving faith. But then there is also then the faith that you and I are called to walk in, what we might call a walking faith. That's that daily trust and reliance upon God, what God is doing in our lives. Scripture also speaks of a a dead faith, right, in the book of James, which is no real faith at all, as opposed to a living faith, which is a growing and trusting faith in God. But what we will see here today is uh, another way that Scripture sometimes speaks of faith, and that is great faith. We heard Jesus sometimes speak of folks who are, what, oh, ye of little faith, right? But then there were also ones that he commended and said, what great faith. There is little faith and great faith. And probably most of us are somewhere along that, that continuum there, aren't we? Somewhere between little faith and great faith. So I want to ask you, faith, Scripture says what? The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Here's something I want to suggest that we might understand is faith. Is the key word here is trust. Faith is trust. And faith is trust, then, in the reality of God's existence. It's trust in the goodness of his character. And it's trust in the certainty of his promises. So it's trust in the reality of his existence, the goodness of his character, and the certainty of his promises. So where do you see yourself on that spectrum of faith, from little faith to great faith? I won't ask you to identify where you are on that right now here, but just imagine, where are you on that? Are you on that side of little faith? Are you at the place of great faith? So wherever you may be on that, I pray that you will be encouraged today and that you'll be encouraged to grow in faith. We're continuing our series here today on the life of Jesus Christ called Unique, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, there is no other person like him, is there? He is utterly unique, unique in human history. He is God, he is man, both, fully human, fully man. 
We saw in our series that he is the eternal Son of God. We saw his pre-incarnate ministry as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament era. We saw his incarnation taking on human flesh, becoming one of us, his birth and childhood, his baptism and temptation in the wilderness, the early days of his ministry, some of his disciples' first encounters with him when he changed the water into wine, the first miracle. We saw his first full year of ministry, the first cleansing of the temple, his encounter with Nicodemus saying, what, you must be born again his encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, his rejection by his own hometown, rejection at Nazareth, his healing and forgiving of the sins of the paralyzed man who was lowered down from a hole in the roof by his friends. And now we're moving into his second full year of ministry, the healing on the Sabbath controversies, his formal appointment of the 12, the 12 disciples, and then we just had finished up before before we took our break for Easter then, the Sermon on the Mount with that critical theme there of true righteousness, true righteousness. So we're going to pick up from there today. So you know, we're using a resource called One Perfect Life, The Complete Story of the Lord Jesus by John MacArthur. And what he has done in this, he's done a wonderful job of putting together all the scriptures together which speak of the life, the death, and the ministry of Jesus Christ. It covers his life from his eternal existence, the Old Testament prophecies and ministry, and then a wonderful harmony of the Gospels, taking the accounts from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, putting them together into one flowing chronological account. Even some critical teachings about him in the New Testament epistles. And finally, his return is described in the book of Revelation. All that in one flowing chronological account. So I would highly recommend that to you. And we are using that then as our guide for this sermon series on the life of Christ, how he takes the scriptures and puts them all together into this one account then for us. So today then, we're continuing then in the king's second full year of earthly ministry. In part 10 here, our theme here of faith, sovereign authority, and sovereign compassion. Faith, Sovereign authority and sovereign compassion. And our text is coming from Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 7. So we'll be drawing from both Matthew 8 and Luke chapter 7 for our text here then today. And here is the key idea, the main idea that I want us to take away from our message here today. And that is that the sovereign and compassionate Lord Jesus is worthy of our faith and praise. Is he worthy? I think we were just singing something not too long ago asking that, right? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? He is worthy, isn't he? Well, he is worthy of our faith, and he is worthy of our praise. Before we look at our text there in Matthew 8 and Luke 7, a little context here. So we said this is in Jesus' second full year of ministry. He was operating out of his adopted home base of ministry in Galilee, the town called Capernaum. And there, when he was there, he would stay in Peter's home. And now he has just finished delivering his Sermon on the Mount, not far from Capernaum. And he is returning then from there. And then we read here then of the faith of a Roman centurion, a very unlikely person, to, uh, to uh, have such faith, such great faith. But first, a little side note, a quick side note on the reliability of Scripture. 
You know, there are some folks that, want that, that question the reliability. Can we really trust this? Is this the word of God? And they'll say, well, you can't trust the Bible because it's full of contradictions. And interesting, when you ask someone to point one of them out to you, oftentimes they can't, right? But there are some, though, that are apparently that they say, oh, yeah, well, what about this right here? As they see right there, the Bible contradicts itself. You can't trust it. And this is one of those accounts here, Jesus' encounter with the Roman centurion here, that some will say, see, can't trust the Bible because in Matthew, in Matthew's account, the centurion himself speaks to Jesus. But in Luke, it's representatives that the centurion sends to speak to Jesus. So is this account, did one of them get it wrong? Was Matthew wrong? Was Luke wrong? Who spoke to Jesus, the centurion or representatives from the centurion? And the answer is yes, both. <laughs> well, how so? How is this not a contradiction? Well, it's this. You see, the centurion, he did speak to Jesus, but he spoke by proxy. He was a man who delegated often tasks to others. And this is actually a very common theme that you see in Scripture. On the one hand, Scripture tells us, how was Uriah the husband of Bathsheba? How was he killed? Who killed Uriah? David. It says David. Well, well, wait a minute. David didn't kill. Who was? It was actually what? Enemy soldiers. Well, who killed him? David or enemy soldiers? Both, right? He was killed by enemy soldiers through the actions of David. Right? Or how about, remember when James and John wanted to sit at the right and the left of Jesus in the kingdom and they petitioned him, you know, let us, one of us, sit on your right, one on your left? Well, in Matthew's, so in Matthew's account, though, who is doing the petitioning? Their mother. Well, who was it? Was it their mother or was it James and John? And the answer is yes. It was right. James and John by their mother, by proxy, doing that. We're also told who scourged Jesus. Well, the Roman soldiers before the crucifixion, they scourged him. But we're also told Pilate scourged him. Well, how did Pilate do it? Pilate gave the order, right? And he was scourged by the Roman soldiers at the order of Pilate. Who purchased that field of blood, that that blood money that Judas got from, uh, from betraying Jesus? And, of course, he was upset, and he threw it back into the temple treasury, and says, what? And so what? So the priests went out and bought this field from that. But we're also told Judas bought it. Well, who did it? Judas or the priests? And the answer is yes, both. Who did it, right? Both of them. So what Matthew is doing, this is actually a very common thing in Scripture, is where we see in which the actions done by one person or persons is attributed to another for, because they're the ones who arranged it to be done or ultimately behind it then. So in this instance here, Matthew speaks of the centurion speaking to Jesus when it was representatives of the centurion who actually spoke to Jesus. However, it is also possible, and I think this may be true as well, it is also possible that the centurion first sent others, the elders of the Jews, and then in the intensity and the anxiety of his distress, he himself also went and spoke to Jesus there. I think that is possible. At any rate, we need not be troubled by that. So with that then, let's look at our text here in Matthew 8 and in Luke 7. We're told, Now, when he concluded all his sayings, that's what, the Sermon on the Mount? He's finished that and now he's returning. When he had concluded all his sayings, in the hearing of the people. And when he had come down from the mountain, 
Great multitudes followed him, and he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for who he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. And Jesus said to them, I will come and heal him. And then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. So we look at our text here first in understanding our text. We first see this dreadful sickness, this dreadful sickness. There is a centurion, a Roman centurion. Let me ask you, how popular was the Roman army in the land of Israel among the Jewish people? Not very popular, right? And here was, I heard that hissing out there, right? Yeah, not very popular at all. And here is a centurion. He is an officer A centurion, how many years is a century? 100. So a centurion was in charge of how many soldiers, do you think? 100. 50, I heard that. Okay, wise guy, right? No, that'd be a semi-centurion, right? So, yeah. So a centurion then was a Roman officer in charge of 100 soldiers. And you've got to imagine then that a Roman centurion is probably not a particularly popular person among the Jews in the land there where he was. But there was something very different and quite amazing about this particular centurion. We see there something of his heart and his convictions. Surprise! 
This centurion was not like what we can be sure many others were. That first off, we see the, the care and the compassion, this man's heart, the care that he had for the well-being of his servant. But then we also see how deeply he respected the Jewish people, their faith and their traditions. He was very familiar with that, and he respected that, and he sought to honor them. In fact, he even went so far as to build a synagogue for them. Do you think that was something a typical centurion did, building <laughs> building synagogue? No. So I think that he was, he was obviously he was a Gentile, but I think he had a faith, a genuine faith in the true God, the God of Israel. And so he knew them. He knew the scriptures. He knew their traditions. And he respected that. So he had heard about Jesus. He heard the things that Jesus was saying and doing. And he saw that God was with Jesus. And he believed in him at that point in the way that he could believe. And so, in fact, this man was respected. This centurion was respected by the Jews, even, because it says he sent elders of the Jews were willing to go and speak to Jesus on his behalf. So here were some of the elders, the leaders in the synagogue there, probably that he had helped build. And they were willing to go. They wanted to go on his behalf and speak to Jesus. They would go probably thinking, okay, Jesus, you know this centurion, I know. You know, Jesus was a Jew, right? And maybe they thought, well, well Jesus wouldn't think much about this centurion either. But he says, no, you, this, he's one of the good ones. This guy's a good guy. They wanted to vouch for him, right? And so he sent these elders then to them. And these elders, and they begged Jesus to come, saying that this centurion was deserving because he loved their nation and he had built them a synagogue. So Jesus agreed to go and heal this servant who was experiencing this dreadful illness. But then we see a conversation about authority here then. We see another instance here then of the centurion's understanding of the Jewish people and their traditions and his respect for that. Because when Jesus was near the house, the centurion sent friends to him saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. Now, do you think this was a typical attitude of a typical Roman centurion to think that he's not worthy of, of this Jewish rabbi? Hardly, right? But he says, Lord, you don't need to even trouble yourself by coming to my home. He also knew what? That there was a tradition among the Jews that if a Jew was to go to the home of a Gentile, to be welcomed there, to enter into that home, that that person then was defiled. They became defiled in some way. Remember when you were little kids, and we always talked about, remember this thing, cooties, that somebody had cooties, right? So they thought, oh, well, yeah, if you, if you, it, it's like you'd get cooties if you come into my house. So Jesus, I know, I know how, you, how you Jews feel about us Gentiles, and I don't want you to get cooties you know, from me, from my house. So don't trouble yourself here with coming. Once again, it shows his understanding 
his respect for them and their traditions on that. It also shows his humility, doesn't it? It says, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But of course, Jesus wasn't troubled by any of that. By he didn't, wasn't afraid he was going to get cooties going to this man's house. So he was going to go anyway. He was going to go to the centurion's home for this. But then the centurion said something that amazed Jesus. You've got to think about that. What would you have to say to amaze the Son of God? Hmm? But he marveled at it. What did the centurion say? He said, you know, you don't need to come to my house. He said, I understand authority. I understand how authority works. And I see it in you that you have authority. So he says, what? Only say the word. You don't have to come to my house here. All you have to do is just say right where you are, just say the word and it'll be done. Because I understand authority. I get it, right? I am a man under authority myself. He had been granted authority from Rome, and he delegated, he, he would tell others to do that, and he spoke with the authority of Rome, and what he said was done because he was a man of authority. I tell this soldier, go, and you better go, right? <laughs> Tells this soldier, come, he better come. To a servant, do this, he better do it. Why? Because he's acting under the authority of Rome. So I understand authority, I just say it, and it gets done. And so I see the authority. You have the authority of heaven. You just say it. It'll be done. And Jesus marveled at his great faith. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Jesus marveled at him. When you hear the word marvel, what do you think? It's what? Just amazement, jaw-dropping amazement, right? Now, some of you, when you heard the word Marvel, you thought of a movie, didn't you? You thought of, like, how many Marvel movies are there now? About 68, I think, or something like that, right? I think I saw, I know I'm probably going to offend somebody here. It goes, but, but please, can we come up with something else besides yet another Marvel movie, right? I mean, you know, because if you've seen one, you've seen them. Okay, now I'm in trouble, right? But, but there you go. So, but no, I know some of you like the superhero stuff and all of that, but... Anyway, yeah, you see, there it is. I heard that. So, so I'm not, not, we're not talking about movies here. We're talking about to marvel simply means what? To be amazed. What does it take to amaze God, the Son of God? In this case, it was great faith. Like, here is, here's a rather unlikely candidate for great faith, don't you think? A Roman centurion. He says, what? I haven't seen faith like this among the people of Israel. Two times in Scripture, it speaks of Jesus marveling, being like amazed by something. This is one of them. He's amazed by this centurion's great faith. Another one, he's amazed, and it's about faith. But it's not about great faith. It's about little faith. It's about the people of Nazareth, his hometown where he grew up, and how he, was, he marveled at their unbelief. You know, so he marveled at the greatness of this centurion's faith, 
And he marveled at the lack of faith or belief in the people in his own hometown. He marveled at this. So he turns to the crowd. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel, maybe even among the Jews. They didn't have the kind of faith this Roman centurion had. He understood Jesus didn't need to come there. He didn't need to lay hands on it. He just needed to will it to say the word and it would be done because he was operating under the authority of heaven and this centurion understood that and believed that. He says, Assuredly, I have told you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And we see here that he says what? That, that many will come from east and west and sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Did Jesus come for the Jews? Yes, he did. Did he come only for them? No, he came for everyone. And he says, many will come from the east. Think about that in our world here today. Think about the many who have come from the east, from Asia, right? And many from the west. He says, many from the west will come. Where have we come from? The West. He was talking about you and me, wasn't he? And many others throughout history, wasn't he? Many will come from the East and the West and will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, what? We're all together, all of God's people for all time together. Not just the Jews, but all of God's people all the people of true faith would come together. Tragically, though, there would be some sons of the kingdom, Jews, what, who would be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That some within Israel, the Jews who should know better, nevertheless, they would be lost and they would come under eternal judgment. But then he does a miraculous healing. Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. Jesus honored this centurion's great faith and healed the servant. So in this instance, then, here we see Jesus responding to faith responding to the great faith of this centurion. And he did what this centurion had requested of him because of his faith. But next we're going to read of another very different situation. Let's continue then. This is taken from Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. We're told, Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin. 
And those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak. And he presented him to his mother. And then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Here we see a a tragedy. This woman was a widow, and her only son had died. So first off, she's grieving. She's grieving a terrible and painful loss. She had already lost her husband. Now she had lost her son. So she is grieving the pain of this loss. But also there's, a, there's something important for us to understand as well here. That not only is this woman grieving these painful losses here, the fact that she was a widow and her only son has died, at that time and that culture, what did that mean for her Prospects, if you will. Pretty grim. She was vulnerable, wasn't she? She was not going to have the support that she would have had from a husband or her son. She would have had no means of support. She could be reduced to begging. So Jesus sees this. He's, and of course, he knows. He understands this. And he expresses compassion When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. He knew all of that. And he said to her, do not weep. He reassured her. And then he did a miraculous restoration. Touched that open coffin. And again, if you were to touch that coffin, you would what? Be ceremonially defiled. But was Jesus concerned about that? Would he be defiled by that? No. So he touched it anyway. He said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the young man sat up, began to speak. Understand, this is not a resurrection. I know sometimes we use being raised from the dead and resurrection kind of interchangeably. They're really two very different things, aren't they? Before the resurrection of Jesus, no one was resurrected. They were raised from the dead. There were a number of people who were raised from the dead that we read of in the Old Testament and here in the New Testament, in the ministry of Jesus. But this young man wasn't resurrected. He was what? He was raised or restored to life, restored to mortal life. He was still in the mortal body, had a mortal body. He died again. I doubt he's still out there living somewhere, right? <laughs> he died again. Resurrection, though, is what? That's a, a, a raising from death and what to a new, transformed, glorified body which can never again die or be sick. Right? So this man, he wasn't resurrected, but he was, raised, he was restored to life, to the mortal life, mortal body. So the one who has power over life and death spoke, and it was so. The people feared. They glorified God. They said, what a great prophet has risen among us. God has visited his people. Just like in the days of Elijah or Elisha, we have another great prophet. Jesus wasn't the first one to to be used to raise someone from the dead, was he? Other prophets in Old Testament times had. Now, not by their power, by God's power operating through them, right? 
Jesus could do that himself with his own power, though, couldn't he? So he said, we have another great prophet, like Elijah or Elisha. But of course, little did they understand, no, he was far greater than any other prophet who had come before. But here I want you to know, what is the difference between this account and the account of the centurion? Faith. The centurion had faith, and he sought Jesus, and Jesus answered and did what he desired. In this case, was the, was the woman looking for this? Did she ask for this? Jesus sovereignly did it because he had compassion. She didn't ask. She wasn't looking. He just did it out of compassion. So here, the miracle was not sought. Jesus simply chose to act sovereignly out of his compassion. So I want us to reflect on that for a minute. Remember I said a little bit, where are you on that faith spectrum? How are we to understand these things? I want to think for a minute here about faith, sovereign authority, and sovereign compassion. Remember we said that faith is, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So we said that faith then is trust. Faith is trust. It's trust in the reality of God's existence. It's trust in the goodness of his character. And it's trust in the certainty of his promises. The reality of his existence, the goodness of his character, the certainty of his promises, trusting in all of those things. So where do you see yourself then on that spectrum from little faith to great faith? Do you want to have great faith? I do. So how do we grow? How do we grow in our faith? Well, first of all, faith is a gift of God, and faith is something that God produces in us. We don't work up faith within ourselves. Faith is something that God does in us, and he produces it in us. Well, So what do we do then? We just sit and wait for God to produce faith in us? No, we do have our part to play, right? Faith is a gift. Faith is something God produces in us. But what must we do, though? Trust in him, right? Trust in what he has said. And I would say the, the way, the primary way that God builds faith in us is how? Right here in his word. The word of God, right? And so the way that we grow in our faith, our part is that work of the spiritual disciplines, if you will. What are the spiritual disciplines? These are these tools that God has given us to grow in our knowledge of him, our relationship with him, in our understanding, and in our faith, our trust in him by practicing the spiritual disciplines. And this is number one on the list right here is being in the word of God, regularly being in the word of God, reading it, Studying it, meditating on it, thinking it over, praying it, praying it back to God, listening to God. It's not just a study, it's not just the mind, it's communing with God in His Word 
it's studying, learning, yes, but it's also then responding then in obedience. And when we do that, what happens? God grows our faith. So this is a critical tool that God has given us to grow our faith. You want to be a person of great faith? Then be a person of the word. Be a man or woman of the word. Prayer is another way that God grows our faith. Prayer is what? It's that communion with God. It's that dialogue with God. Prayer isn't just, Lord, please do A, B, and C. Amen. It's what? It's a conversation with God. It's adoring. It's worshiping God. It's confessing our sin. It's giving thanks to God. And yes, it's bringing those needs and concerns on our hearts to him, which he already knows those things anyway, right? But we need to bring them to him so that we can sit in his presence and hear what he is saying to us about those things, right? So how do we become a man or a woman, a young person of great faith? We've got to be in his word. We've got to be talking with him. Word, prayer, worship. You know, worship is not only singing a song together. That's part of worship. That's one of the ways we worship, right? But worship is more than that. Worship is what? Is, is an attitude of declaring in our hearts and wills that God is worthy of our devotion, our affection, our adoration, our attention, be the center of our lives. Worship is worship. It's declaring that God is worthy of being the focus of our lives and being adored and being praised. And we do that through singing a song, but we also do that through praying. We do that through listening a message from his word. We do that through a, a conversation with one another. We can worship God through that. Worship as a whole, it's a way of life. It's a constant attitude daily. It's not Sunday morning singing songs only. It's more than that. The word of God, prayer, worship, fellowship. God has given us one another to encourage one another, to strengthen one, to edify, to build one another up. Our faith grows through that. And then also, you ever think of this? Service that God has given us each, abilities that we can use to serve to build the body of Christ. Did you know that your faith grows when you are involved in service of some kind? Right? These are the ways that we can grow in our faith. But we also must acknowledge, though, that God is sovereign. That is, to, to say that God is sovereign, it means what? That he is he's in control. He's in charge. He rules over all things. So he has all authority, sovereign authority, he can do, there is nothing that has control of all things. He has all power, all authority. Nothing is impossible with God. But he also is sovereign. He's also a compassionate and gracious God. And he's sovereign over that as well. He commands us to believe. And he is pleased by faith. In fact, Scripture tells us what? It's impossible to please him without faith. So I might say, well, on the one hand, with the centurion, we saw that he exercised faith. It was great faith. And Jesus granted him what he had asked. But in the case of the widow, had she asked for that? 
Was she expecting that? No. He simply did that out of his gracious compassion. And he's in charge of that all. He commands us to believe. He's pleased by faith. But he doesn't always do what we want, does he? And sometimes we don't understand why God answers a prayer this certain way. Sometimes it seems like he's not hearing at all. He's not answering at all. Which, by the way, I've always said people say, well, what about unanswered prayer? To which I say, I know what you mean by that question. I get it, okay. But is there any such thing as an unanswered prayer? No, there isn't. It's heard. It's answered. But when we say unanswered prayer, we mean what? We don't like the answer. Or we have to wait. Or it's not what we wanted, right? So wait a minute. Well, if, are, are you saying, Pastor, that if you have great faith, whatever you ask for, God's going to do that? In fact, there's even a scripture verse that talks about that, right? Well, in the entirety of scripture, understanding all... You can have great faith, and you can ask God for something. Does that mean that he is absolutely, definitely obligated to do that because you have faith in that? No, he meant what? He is sovereign over all of that. Now, he very, very well may answer your prayer exactly. And actually, how many of you had prayers that he actually answered it far better, more than you had even imagined, right? We've all experienced that, too. He's sovereign over that. So why doesn't God always do what we want? Well, because he knows better, first of all, right? But we might wonder sometimes, right, that this seems like, God, you you, you should do this. Why aren't you doing this? And we don't understand. And then on the other hand, how many of the times have we seen something where we weren't even asking for it, we weren't expecting it all, and God just did it, right? Why does God do the things he does? Because he's got, I like that, there's the answer. Yeah. Here's my short answer. I don't know. I'm not God. I don't know why God sometimes does not answer. I just did it myself, didn't I? Does not do for us what we believed with great faith. And on the other hand, why all of a sudden, like, wow, <laughs> I didn't see that coming. And by the way, isn't it true? And sometimes we think of the blessings, we think, oh, these are the things that are pleasing to us and that we want, we're happy about that. And we think that's God's answer and we give praise for that. But you've heard that sometimes the things that don't feel so good, that's God, that's God too, isn't it? Because God is, knows what he's doing through that. So why does God... Why does God do what God does? I don't know. But here's what I do know. He is pleased with faith, and he will reward that faith. Whether it's doing what you want or think or not, I guarantee you he is pleased with it, and he will reward it now or in heaven and the new earth. He will reward it. Well, so what? What should we do? I want to remind us here that the sovereign and compassionate Lord Jesus is worthy of our faith and our praise. And I want to challenge us here. Wherever you are on the faith spectrum, from little faith to great faith, 
to say, I want to grow. I want to be a man. I want to be a woman. I want to be a young person of faith, of great faith. So I'm going to grow. I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust in God's sovereign authority. There's nothing to... There's nothing that's out of his control. He's all-powerful. Nothing is impossible with him. So I'm going to trust. I'm going I'm to trust that he is there. I'm going to trust that he is good. And I am going to trust that he's going to fulfill all the promises that he has made. And I'm going to trust that he has good intentions with my life and what he's going to do in it. Even in the painful stuff and the hard stuff, I'm going to trust him through that. And I'm going to praise. I'm going to praise his sovereign compassion. The things, I wasn't asking for it. I didn't see it. But there it is. There it is. Trust in God's sovereign authority. Praise his sovereign compassion. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time here today in your word. Lord, we do not always understand the way you work. But we do know that you are good that you are gracious and you are compassionate. So we trust, Lord. We put our trust and confidence in you. We put our trust and confidence in your good character, in your good intentions, in your good purposes and plans. And we trust and we believe, Lord, that you are going to fulfill all of those promises and that we can turn over our lives to you now, Lord. Lord, if we've been praying for something for a long time and we're not seeing it and we're discouraged, I pray that you'd encourage that person. Let them know that whatever your answer may be, if it's waiting or if it's going to be a different answer, or even if the answer is, is no to that, that you are pleased with faith and that you will reward that faith. And Lord, maybe there's something that you put your, your, your finger on our heart that you're asking us to trust you and that, to believe that you're, gonna, you're not going to do that. You're going to go far above and beyond it. But whatever may be your purposes and plans in our lives, we believe you're sovereign. We believe you're good. And we believe that you are worthy of our praise and adoration. So we give you our hearts. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.